Hello and welcome to another episode. I'm pleased to be joined today by Cease to Know, a philosopher and fellow content creator whose main interests are philosophy, science, and politics. Cease and I collaborate a lot, mostly when talking to people about science, but we do have different perspectives. This episode is primarily about different philosophical ideas about existence and the role of philosophy in science. Let's get started. Welcome to uh, welcome to the channel. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So first thing, I figured I would just let you kind of introduce yourself in whatever way you want, whatever you think is important or relevant. Sure. Yeah. So I've pretty much been interested in philosophy all my life. Um, I grew up uh, in a in a household where my father was a philosophy professor. Um, my brother is a physicist. And I would, you know, hear a lot of dialogue, you know, kind of from the scientific perspective and the philosophical perspective. Uh, and so I, I was always interested in these topics. Um, and I pretty much knew from the get-go that when I went to college, I was going to study philosophy and kind of follow, you know, footsteps. Um, and um, yeah, I'm pretty much now. Uh, I, I I make content on YouTube uh, about. Uh, speaking about philosophy, science, religion, uh, politics, I also make content on TikTok and do uh, pretty regularly uh, TikTok lives where I just have debates or conversations with people about this type of uh, topics. Um, I am completing my master's degree in philosophy. Um, all I have, I mean, I'm already done my classes and credits and everything. I'm just uh, about to defend my thesis. Oh. Um, what's uh, What's your thesis? Um, I, I'm writing a critique of postmodernism, so uh, uh, I'm examining kind of well, what is even meant by that in the context of philosophy, because it's actually kind of a vague question uh, where I think the, the positives of the, the perspectives are and then where the, the negatives are. Um, and yeah, that's about it. That is so hilarious because one of my questions is WTF is postmodernism because it's people. It's uh, I, the only reason I know it exists is sadly because of uh, Jordan Peterson. But yeah, well, uh, we'll get to that down the road. But that's just that's awesome that that's your thesis. Mm -hmm. uh, so obviously you'll have a lot to say about that. That's awesome. Um, so we kind of had a little bit of correspondence before we got into this and we so i i asked cease like what are the sort of philosophical schools of thought that interest you the most and i sort of looked into them and uh the people that you referenced it sounds like they are existentialist philosophers um do i do i got that right yeah i mean uh, some of them are um i th i think that my two main interests are phenomenology which is all about kind of like the nature of subjective experience. And then uh, tie to that philosophy of mind, mm -hmm. uh, philosophy of language. But certainly there are like existential questions tied in with that as well. Um, and yeah, I think existential philosophy is one of my main interests there. Probably, I would say probably secondary to phenomenology. When I looked into existentialism, to me, it, it seems to be the philosophy of exploring human existence with regard to its meaning, its purpose, and its value. So you think I got that right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. 
Okay. So <clears throat> the, the classical philosophical view was sort of that a thing's essence precedes its existence. So for example, a cup isn't a cup if it can't hold any liquid, right? But then nihilism came around and told us, well, we don't exist for a purpose because unless there was like a God or some sort of transcendent rationality that, that dictated the reason why humans exist, then we have to accept that we just exist. So then where does purpose come from? And existentialism was sort of meant to answer that. So do you think that that's sort of accurate or like what's your understanding of existentialism? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think it's about how we define the terms, right? If by meaning we mean some uh, purpose given to us externally, um, somehow like independent of our own uh, consciousness, then sure then there is no meaning in that context. But I think that's a very reductive way of looking at it. Um, I view consciousness kind of like uh, uh, meaning factories. You know, what is it that I mean by, by meaning and purpose? Well, engaging in the actions uh, that fulfill me. Um, so that might mean engaging in philosophy, learning, playing music, uh, connecting with, with friends, building friendships or relationships. These are all the kind of experiences that provide me with great fulfillment. And I think that's all that can really be meant by, by meaning. And, and this idea that I hear often from people that, well, if life is finite or if there is no God, then nothing means anything. I think it's completely delusional. Um, you know, a, a song isn't less beautiful because it ends. Like, the difference between like a, a good meal and a bad meal is still like a real difference, even though like the meal is temporary. It's not like, oh, I'm gonna die, you know, at some point, might as well just eat shit sandwiches the rest of my life. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it, it's such a dumb, re reductive way of looking at things. Yeah, I just like the idea that, the idea that your purpose and your existence should be dictated by a God or whatever, that, that makes my existence meaningless because like well you're cheapening human existence well if it has nothing to do with me and my experience and what i and the decisions i make or whatever then i i just think that it's that it's kind of deeply hypocritical it never really made a lot of sense to me well it's i think it's also comes out of fear uh, of um anxiety about the unknown anxiety about uh, if there is nobody looking out for us, then I think people with a certain kind of psychology feel lost at sea in a certain kind of way. Um, and that can, you know, bring about feelings of hopelessness uh, for those kinds of people. Um, I've never had that problem. Um, I've always kind of embraced the uncertainty and I'm comfortable in that space. Uh, but a lot of people aren't. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, so the first uh, philosopher that we can talk about is I'm gonna I'm not gonna pronounce his name right. There's no way, but uh, Maurice Merleau Ponty. Or no, you got it. You got it. Something yeah. to that effect. So uh, he was a French philosopher, and the little bit of homework I did said that uh, one of his main ideas was that the body does not merely receive stimuli, but is an active uh, participant in constructing perceptions yeah. yeah i oh sorry go ahead oh no I, I was gonna let you go ahead um i i find his work to be really fascinating 
because you know before him there was this you know the kind of the Cartesian perspective which which was you know, it's more about uh, the mind you know I I think therefore I am this idea that it was all rooted in, in uh, this kind of uh, rational uh, uh, perception uh, what, what he wants to say is that no actually it's in the way in which I can engage in the world through my body um, that shapes the way that I understand the world and perceive that world. So he talks about the concept of the body schema. Uh, he talks about, um, he kind of flips the narrative uh, around, whereas now it's, uh, it, is in, it is through, through my, the embodiment of my body that I arrive at, at an understanding and a construction of the world. And so one thing that he does, which I think is really fascinating, is that he looks at people um, outside of the norm. He looks up. He studied people with brain damage, uh, and uh, to figure out, okay, these people have different types of limitations in, uh, and and a different kind of subjective experience because they can't engage in the world the way that, that everybody else can, for one disability or, or another. And so, how does that? Uh, how do those limitations? change the way they perceive in comparison to the way that we perceive um, and so he takes the kind of the um, the exceptions and the outliers and in studying those he learns something new about the the people that are the the more common uh, uh, ways of experiencing um, so I mean one thing he says you know he he has something like uh, you know, the body is our there was something along the lines that our, the body is our general medium for uh, having a world um and so i think that's really interesting and um i think it's right that that it is through our experience that we kind of gain this understanding not to some some intellect divorced from the experience um okay. if that makes sense yeah, I think that makes sense. So this, um, the idea that I, I never really heard this philosophy before, but but I think I, I've said things that are sort of part of it. So like I, I say things like, well, we are part of our environment. You know, the the environment isn't something out there that that happens to us. Um, we are part of it, and we unquestionably interact with it. So I think if you want to understand, you know, a, an idea like free will or or a concept like addiction. I, I don't think it's useful to think that there's some sort of top-down thing within us, uh, like a, a vital essence, a soul or whatever, that's non-corporeal and different from the environment or the bodily environment. I think the idea that they interact together is really the only thing that makes sense to me. And it's kind of, it's interesting that Ponty apparently uh, was interested in people that had, you know, brain damage or whatever, because... I'm sure you know about Phineas Gage, the guy that had the railroad spike go through his head. That was really the first time ever that people started to understand that the brain modifies behavior because it changed a lot of what people think they know about Phineas Gage is actually wrong. <laughs> there's a there's a really good podcast called The Disappearing Spoon. He did a he did an episode about Phineas Gage uh, fairly recently, but yeah, I mean the the idea that uh, the brain is just is a physical thing and and the way it 
and the activities of it and things that happen to us that affect it changes our our experience and even our conscious experience and things right. to that to that effect I, I would urge anybody listening to this to check out his work called phenomenology of perception um i think that it's uh really really interesting and, and i think a, a good uh way to sort of understand his perspectives on, on a deeper level for sure sure so you you may have touched on this a little bit but just kind of expand what sort of like views or questions or problems that we have in the world today do you think this perspective might help us expand and understand a little better i mean i think that something and i see this a lot on on kind of the social media debates that we take apart take part of um people i think are really naive in the way they they think about human nature and, and consciousness and uh, subjectivity in specific um so the concept of subject subjectivity in in moral talk is different than that in phenomenology uh when you hear someone say oh well it's morally subjective they'll say they'll think something along the lines of well what is right and what is wrong is going to be dependent uh uh based on the, the specific standards of an individual and that's going to be different from person to person whereas um in a context of phenomenology um the entire point is to try to understand whether or not subjectivity on an experiential level can be grounded uh, in such a way where we can figure out that there are universals there, there's like there's a nature to subjectivity that um is actually encompassing so even though like we're different people having two subjective experiences, there are going to be links between us in the way in which we're experiencing. So it, you know, if we're both looking at a glass on a table, you're looking at it from from your subjective uh, standpoint, and I'm looking at it from mine. But we can communicate about the fact that we're looking at a glass on a table, and really come to some common ground there. You know, if I experience pain and you experience pain. We're different people, but there is something there about pain that we can communicate about in objective terms. So this conflict between subjectivity and objectivity is an illusory one in this context. And so um, why this matters is that people really seem to think that we're all just different. You know, that there is no finding some kind of common ground, especially when we're talking about morality, about what can we say, can we say that something is objectively wrong? I, I think that we can, if by that we mean uh, what type of actions will lead us to either suffer or flourish. And because I think that consciousness has a nature that has the shared universals, there's something objective there that we can point to. There's a structure there. There's a nature there. Um, and so I think that, I don't know, that and, and also just in understanding what it means to have experiences to begin with, like what is it like? uh to have these experiences uh i think it's important are you a fan of jeremy bentham because what you're talking about to me sounds a lot like utilitarianism and i i would say i'm probably a, a utilitarianist um, i try to think pragmatically and i i that's why i i like science so much because we have problems and i think science is the best tool to solve them so i tend to to lean that way, although I think there are some issues there. Like, I would not remove, for example, the value of intentions, you know, from the moral framework 
from the moral conversation because ultimately why somebody does something is also important not just the consequences of that action um i also wouldn't call any action which causes suffering moral and i think whereas i think the utilitarian would i would say that on on a spectrum there may, there may be situations where every action you can take is an, is an immoral one and so some actions are still going to be preferable to others um but you know the utilitarian perspective also i think focuses more on like the greater good whereas i want i'm interested in the balance between the good for the individual and that of the society i think both matter to me uh, now you know I, I think that there's a lot of um i mean i mean one example one issue with utilitarianism which i think again it's not really an issue when you go a little bit deeper but um this idea that well if we're following the utilitarian moral mathematics of sorts, well, it would be justified to, uh, you know, take the organs of one person to say five. Well, True. Yeah. It, there's something there that doesn't seem, in, you know, right, right? There's something yeah. intuitive. Well, I, I would say, well, let's examine what would it be like? What would, what would be the consequences ultimately? uh pragmatically of living in a society like that where we could just be taken away and vivisected um uh without any sort of uh you know ju just uh, like that that would lead it's that action would also lead to negative consequences so even if maybe we don't save the five people by not hurting the one person. It's because ultimately living in that kind of society would actually be more detrimental for everybody because it's not just about survival, right? It's also about quality of life. Um, so there, you know, there's some tensions there. Yeah, you can, yeah, you can understand that. You'd, it's like a lot of things, they make, they make perfect sense, but then you come up with the thought idea or the thought experiment, well, what if blank? And then it's like, yeah. okay, well, now do we uh, just jump to the uh, the categorical imperative, or 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 what? Whose idea was that? Now I can't remember. Uh, I believe you're talking uh, about Kant. Yeah, Kant. Yeah, Kant, the the categorical. Well, that's a little bit outside the scope of what I wanted sure. to talk about today, but it's interesting nonetheless. Um, so uh, another one, another famous of these like existentialist philosophers was Simone de Bouvier. I don't know if I'm saying that right once again, yeah. but um, uh, I I looked into her a little bit, but what were her main insights that resonated with you? I'll just well, let you speak on it. I think that she talked a lot about, uh, I, I, how do I say this? In some ways she was like the, she was very influential in feminist philosophy. I guess mm -hmm. I'll say it that way. Yeah, I got um, that. Um, her kind of talking about what it's like to be a, a woman, um, what it's like to uh, kind of be objectified and, and be dehumanized, and and you know not be seen as uh, her own person in a sense. Uh, and she really offered a lot of. Uh, insights on um, the injustice uh, and the hypocrisy and the dehumanization uh, of the you know, 
the, the time period and the culture that she was a part of. And I think many of her insights, um, I think, are still very relevant today. Um, I, I found, you know, and she was, you know, she was an author, uh, and as well as a philosopher. And I think she was, um, you know, one of one of one of the, the things about her was that I think she, her and Sartre, were uh, lovers, and and often Sartre gets a lot gets a lot of credit um, for her kind of his existential philosophy. Uh, whereas I think that actually hers was better. Hers, her writing was clearer. I think she took everything Sartre did and, and, and made it better. So these philosophers that we've been talking about, they were also phenomenologists. I, I'm saying that wrong. It's like phenomenon and then ologist. It's, it's, I can't do it for whatever reason. Um, so I have some notes about what it is, but in your words, what is Feminology there, uh, close enough. Um, it's hard for me to say too. Um, yeah, um, it's basically trying to figure out if it's possible to talk about subjective experience in objective terms. Mm -hmm. So it's trying to get at, at the root of like what it's like, you know, conscious consciousness. Um, the, you know, you've, I'm sure you've heard the term qualia before. Yeah, not until uh, recently, but it, it comes up with a lot of the people I debate, and they're like, well, do you believe in qualia, yes or no? And then they, they so yeah, I've had a lot of annoying debates around that. Yeah, it, I mean, it's it's just a fancy term to to describe the, what it's like of the, the qualitative aspect of our experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, like we can provide kind of mechanistic descriptions and, and, and physical descriptions of certain things, but that when we're talking about the, what it's like, there seems to be something that's a little bit different or that maybe is not being fully captured by things like measurement. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's trying to see whether or not we can ground subjectivity in, in something concrete where we, we can kind of what I was saying earlier, figure out if there are these universals across the board of subjective experience. Yeah, so like, you know, science would try to like measure an experience. So like, could I, can I scientifically detect whether or not somebody has a conscious experience? Well, there, there are like tests you can do to do that. Or that sort of, you can have like a predictive model that says like, well, although I can't access the mind of, of somebody, there are like these tests I can do for it i mean that's that's done like in uh um in hospitals and stuff of course like that as well but whereas uh, uh a phenomenologist tries to describe those experiences not yeah. not really just measure them i mean clearly there's a difference between saying you know, the, the the temperature is you know 45 degrees versus trying to describe it well what is it like to have an experience of 45 degrees temperature yeah you know they're um I think they're both important questions. Mm -hmm. Well, that being said, I, I, from what I gathered, phenomenology it tries to make a science out of consciousness, but it it says that consciousness isn't a thing that can be isolated. It's about the relationship between things. Exactly. Yeah, and I'm not sure. I don't know how I feel about about that. I I don't know that that it's necessarily 
I think it's trying to be a science in a certain kind of way, but also recognizing that its approach is different. And so I'm not sure that it's necessarily like really trying to be a science. They're, they're trying to be rigorous about how they, you know, arrive at these descriptions and these understandings. Um, but they're, they're, they're not so much making uh, truth claims in, in the same kind of way, I think. Uh, they're more trying to figure out, okay, how much can we learn about subjective experience? And then if we put it all together, does that lead us to some kind of overarching picture about it that might illuminate our understanding? Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I take it that you're probably not a dualist, um, and I'm I'm interested to hear why not. Yeah, so I think that so there are different types of dualism, right? Um, there is the the substance dualist, which maintains that the the mental and the physical are their own ontologies, are their own separate substances um, that. Uh, may interact, but are still uh, ultimately separate. Well, that doesn't really make any sense to me. Uh, one, the main problem there is what's called the mind-body problem. It's like, well, if they are different entities, well, how does the mind impact the body? How does the mental impact the physical? Uh, it's, and it's also called the interaction problem. And I think that ultimately there, there is no um satisfying answer for me other than well it just does whereas to me it's simpler instead of imagining extra ontologies um to me it makes more sense to to say well no it's everything is one thing it's just one thing now the idealist not in a political sense but in the context of philosophy of mind will say yeah there is one thing but actually that thing is the mind that thing is consciousness and what we think of as the physical is just like an emergent feature of, of um, consciousness. And the physicalist does the opposite. Yeah, uh, I was going to say, I, I feel the opposite of that. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, yeah, the physicalist will say that, no, actually everything is physical. And uh, what we think of as mind is actually just an emergent feature of the physical. And so, you know, we might recognize that there's a difference between like holding an apple and having an idea of an apple um, but an idea of an apple is just brains doing what brains do and um which is still going to be a, a type of physical phenomena uh that's going to lead to something different than you know an actual apple but it's not something that's somehow immaterial and people are like well how can thoughts be material um, that's just because we, you know, aren't really aware of what is happening within ourselves uh, when we have thoughts. Uh, but yeah, obviously, I don't mean like I think of an apple. There's not like an apple in my brain. They're just brains right. doing certain things. Now, um, I think ultimately uh, there are issues with every single one of these views, um, and we always get to like a kind of brute fact eventually. Like the do the substance dualist might say, "Well, yeah, I can't answer the interaction problem, but you can't answer why it is that a particular physical configuration leads to consciousness in the first place." 
um, and the idealist might say something like, uh, well, uh, no matter what physical description you provide, it's going to be inadequate uh, in actually capturing what is even meant by consciousness. Now, I agree with that, but I think the way to resolve that is not by saying, oh, well, therefore everything is consciousness. Um, I think the better answer is saying, uh, well, the reason why that happens is because there's always a gap between the thing itself and the description. Uh, and by physical, I don't mean just a measurement. Uh, I mean something deeper than that. And so because we are kind of stuck in our linguistic and subjective limitations, yeah, the consciousness is always going to be elusive to a degree. That doesn't mean that it isn't physical. Um, so I would, I guess I would call myself a, a non-reductive physicalist. Okay. Yeah. People, I think people maybe think that, uh, saying that something is physical means it has to be like composed of matter, but no, it just means it has to be able to like interact with matter really. So like, that's why the idea of, for me, I'm not a dualist. And because that's the idea that our body is controlled by some non-corporeal entity just simply makes no sense because a non-physical object couldn't do that. It, if it's non-physical, it can't interact with my body. Right. And um, if it's if it's not non-physical, then it should be measurable. But I mean, it's not. There's this whole history. I have a whole podcast about uh, vital essence. And a lot of vital essence was like the search for like some sort of soul or something that that makes life work and it just simply was never found and if it's a if it's like a a literal soul or spirit and if it's supernatural well then it's not ep epistemically useful in any way because you're not going to be able to test it or or it, all you could ever do is argue about it which to me is uh just not useful in any way and i'll add to that too that it's not just if it in can interact with matter, but it's also the interactions, right? Like if we're talking about forces, we're not talking about objects, right? But we wouldn't say that forces aren't physical. You know, yeah, I, uh, I I had this conversation with my students. It was it was really fun. I, I made them brainstorm. I said, try to think of something that exists, but is not made of matter. Because we're, we're a chemistry class, so we learn about matter. And they were like, uh, the, the obvious ones are like light and sound and heat and stuff like that but then there's also the idea of um like i grabbed two magnets and i, I flipped them so they opposed each other and i was like what is like they they are resisting each other but that's that's not energy and it's not matter but it's it's really happening and those that's a, a force for example but because it interacts with matter it is still considered physical right and uh that was a that was a cool conversation to have but then some of them some of these uh, little philosophers, they were like thoughts and ideas. I was like, yeah, I mean, well, I, I don't, I don't necessarily think they're non-physical, but yeah, they're not made of anything. But you know, I close my eyes and I can see a tree, but it's not really a tree. So what the heck is it? And I, I told them this is the hardest problem in all of science, and it may never be solved. So, yeah, yeah, I would say it's like a representation of a tree based on experience and, and memories. But the, that representation has a kind of a, a physical foundation. You know, it's it's brains. Again, we don't know this. You know all the details about how it's doing what it's doing. 
but the idea that it would be somehow independent of the brain was strange to me. Yeah, it's it doesn't make a lot of sense to me either. Um, so going back a little bit, uh, those of you that are watching or listening, you might have you might have sort of picked up a a, a theme with regard to the people we were talking about, and we uh, I don't know if we mentioned Descartes by name, but we've been talking about Descartes here for for a while, and and the other three philosophers we've talked about. So my question is, um, why was early 20th century philosophy so French? I know that's a weird question, but why do you think that? And Descartes was 1600s, but. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think it's interesting to see just historically, uh, you know, the kind of different philosophical movements in, in you know, uh, Renaissance take place uh, in different places at different times. Um, I do. I will say that I think that Eastern philosophy and even like African philosophy is wildly underrated. So I think some, sometimes we're, we're kind of given the impression that, you know, uh, in these important movements and steps forward only took place in, in these areas and in these times, whereas I would say, no, there's a lot of other type of perspectives and, and traditions that are just as valuable, uh, but they're not taught as much. Um, but yeah, I, I think that there's definitely a lot there of, of value to, to be found for sure. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, so we're kind of uh, switch. Well, it's not exactly switching up, but uh, uh, Wittgenstein, he kind of famously said that philosophy was basically dissolved by science. I think that's kind of how he put it. Um, everything about it was now sort of subject to the realm of perhaps physics. And there was this attitude in the early 20th century that physics was sort of complete. Now, that wasn't true because we ended up getting uh, a brand new paradigm of quantum physics. But I think a lot of people believe that philosophy has sort of run its useful course. So for example, I already talked about the concept of vital essence and souls. That was sort of mummified by science um, because science could answer philosophy's questions, but philosophy sort of couldn't. So I'm just wondering what's your, as a philosopher, I, I, I can't imagine that you think that philosophy has run its useful course. No. What's like your response to when people say things like that? Well, let me just say that I find Wittgenstein's work on linguistics to be incredibly, incredibly interesting uh, and very valuable. And, and I, I agree to, with him to an extent, although there are certain things he says that I, I don't agree with. Um, but, you know, I, and I said this on a, on a podcast the other week, I think that um, philosophy without science is useless. But I think science without philosophy is blind. Um, I think they need each other. But and I also think that I mean to be fair, I think it, the framing of the question I think is problematic because science is a branch of philosophy. Now, science is engaging in, in the world um, while following a certain kind of standard that that is the result of holding to a particular philosophy. Um, and you know, I, I think there are many questions that science brings about, especially in modern physics, um, that very much need 
um, philosophy to kind of move forward. I mean, look, I, I had a conversation with, with my brother, who's a physicist, on this the other week. And uh, what he says is that uh, modern physics seems to really undermine our basic intuitions about the, the way that the world is. When, when we get to the deeper level of, of reality, the things that we take for granted seem to kind of fall apart. Uh, and there are certain observations that really seem at, its, at their face nonsensical or, or inexpressible. So the question becomes, how do we then reinterpret these findings and then communicate these findings in a way where meaning can be expressed? And part of the problem is that our language is inadequate to doing this because our language is based on this kind of our intuitive um, perspectives of the world. And I think that one way in which I think philosophy is incredible is going to be incredibly useful, uh, hopefully, at least that's my hope, is in constructing a new language um, to express what we seem to be finding out through the sciences. I mean, look, I don't know. I have an issue when when religious people say things like God exists outside of space and time. I don't know what that means, right? Because no, me, nobody does. Yeah, because to me, existence is understood in a context of space and time. The problem is that there are physicists who say that space and time are emergent and not fundamental, and that there are these quantum fields that exist outside of space and time that are actually the, the foundation of what we think of space and time. Well, I don't know what that means either, right? <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> and, and so I see this as a problem. And I see this as something that needs to be resolved. And it's not that because our language has its problems, we throw away the science. No, right. no, like we have to find a way to integrate it too. But we can't also just say, well, the math works out, so it's fine. Like the math, the equations doesn't tell me anything. Uh, from my perspective, of, of any kind of linguistic meaning that that actually helps me understand what I'm saying about the world. And so, you know, I I think this is a, a real issue. And um, so, you know, my you know, and I'll send you the, the podcast. Me and my brother went back and forth for an, an hour. Didn't resolve anything, but at least figure out what the problems are. Um, and so, I, I think that philosophy still has a lot to say on, on these issues. And, and science alone is not enough. Um, yeah, I would, I, I, your, uh, your brother's probably a big fan of Sean Carroll and, and so am I, and he now is a philosopher of physics, which is really interesting. I would have never thought that he would have done that, but he's always taken philosophy really seriously. And he's of course an extremely brilliant physicist as well. So it's been, it's really interesting that he, uh, decided to make that, make that change. He I mean, it's ironic you say that because actually, my, my brother has some issues with Carol on, mm. on certain issues. Uh, I think that he, you, I mean, and again, it's not to say that there aren't points of commonality. Obviously, there are, uh, and I think both him and I share a great enjoyment of the debates that Carol had with William Lane Craig, which was yeah. I don't know if you it, that was a destruction of epic proportions that I I cannot get enough of watching. That said, there are certain things about Carol that I think are problematic. Um, and yeah, some of his interpretations of, of the physics, uh, I think there's issues there, but that's the conversation for another time.
Interesting. Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, so now this gets us into uh, postmodernism. So I I never heard of it until, uh, you know, like Jordan Peterson, who I'm a fan of a huge amount of stuff he's done and said, but the last three, four, five years have just been like, no. Um, but he's he's always been obsessed with them, it seems. And to me, I, I looked into this and post postmodernism to me, it seems to be about the voice of the oppressed. Um, so like, for example, the, the ideas of like life, liberty, and happiness, you know, those were, those were cute ideas, but the horrors of the Algerian genocide, the Holocaust, Vietnam, the systematic racism of most of the 20th century, um, and the replacement of, you know, the, the American revolution, the French revolution, and all these other things, we, we overthrew our kings and our aristocrats, but then they ended up getting replaced just by tycoons and tyrannical government officials like, you know, McCarthy and, and a whole bunch of others. So it seems to me that like postmodernism was a, was a reaction to that. Yeah, for sure. So um, to say there, yeah. Um, well, first of all, you mentioned Peterson, uh, Jordan Peterson, and I want to make a statement about him. Um, in a lot of ways, I find him to be laughable. Um, I think the things he says about philosophy, in particular, his interpretations of philosophy are just so, so bad. Um, he criticizes postmodernism, but turns into a complete fucking postmodernist as soon as you ask him about what do you mean by God. Uh, I, it's mind-boggling. I have noticed the exact same thing. Yeah, because he goes on this like, the, the postmodernists say that nothing is real and everything's like uh, if you ever played the Assassin's Creed games, nothing is true, everything yeah. is permitted. Yeah. And then you ask him about God, and it's uh, well, what do you mean by? <laughs> and he says things like uh, oh, yeah. the, the Exodus happened in a meta sense; it didn't really happen. It like, becomes a complete like now nobody knows anything and we can't define any of the terms and we have to spend you know seven hours just getting to what the word god means it's just completely delusional um yeah. I, I think well i'm not gonna go into like a psychoanalysis of peterson i just think he's a highly unhappy individual that is holding on to this idea of god desperately because he can't function otherwise but moving on from that because i yeah uh, he just he triggers me. Uh, uh, he just really triggers me. Um, no, but look, I, I think we said about postmodernism is true. I think it's coming out of a reaction of this um, uh, rejection of the propaganda and the meta narratives of these cultures that claim to have objective truth, and in reality, it was just people in power. Uh, trying to hold down to the power. So I, I want to quote, uh, and I'm going to butcher this name, but uh, uh, Jean, Fren I can't say his name, Leotard, I think is his last name. He defined postmodernism uh, in the postmodern condition as sim uh, in simplifying to the extreme, a defined postmodern uh, as incredulity towards meta narratives. Uh, and he means by this, something like a unified complete universal and epistemically certain story about everything that is so it's this idea that there's this like certain objective truth 
that we can arrive through, whether through philosophy or through science. Um, and their concern is that this so-called truth is really always dependent and contingent upon the historical and social context rather than some real truth that we're actually discovering. And when we look at these so-called truths on a deeper level, what we're seeing is just power dynamics and, and shifting of the power dynamics and, uh, and stories that we're telling ourselves and, or that we're being told uh, from the structures in power. So I appreciate where postmodernism post comes from. This, this look, this view of truth in a less naive way, um, I find that admirable. The problem is that like every movement and every uh, uh, viewpoint eventually becomes a caricature of itself. So where it started off from, from I think a healthy skepticism, then it, it, it develops into nonsense where now anything is anything. We have no way of, of knowing any truth at all. Even language is completely, you know, uh, based in culture. Science is cultural. Um, um, everything is a meta-narrative. Uh, we can't get to any kind of moral truth. Um, language is so ambiguous that we can't even know if we're communicating in any kind of real sense. And so it just becomes a spiral of, of pseudo-intellectualism. Um, I, I think, ironically, uh, and I don't know the, I forget the details, but uh, a paper was published um, some time ago that was computer, completely computer-generated. You know, this scientist did an experiment uh, and then try to see if this paper that basically had no actual meaning behind it could get published in philosophical fields, and particularly with kind of the postmodern attitude about things. And it did, and people thought, you know, argued about its its meaning and tried to make it like it was just, you know, very in-depth. It was all bullshit. It was just, you know, people with too much time on their hands um, uh, kind of patting themselves on the back trying to sound deep. That know, sounds yeah. like, you know who James Lindsay is? Sounds very familiar. He's he's the guy that did the, he exposed the, uh, oh, what do you call it? It's like the, uh, uh, what do they call that? The uh, the study of people who are oppressed or something like that is the, uh, oh my God, I can't remember. But he published all the fake papers in like, uh, in critical theory, basically. So like the he published like these really weird satirical um feminist things and like queer studies and fat studies and and stuff like that. There's a name for that and I cannot remember what it is. I feel so dumb. But yeah, they like literally won an award and a lot of their papers got published, but they were purposely writing the dumbest shit they could think of. Yeah. Uh just to show that it's now gotten to the point where there's no difference between satire and the real thing. And it's just sort of a, a sad state of things, but uh, grievances studies, that's what they're called. Right. The, it's like, it's called like the grievances hoax or whatever. It's, it's really funny, but it's, it's kind of sad at the same time. But yeah. um, some of the papers they wrote are just, they're so funny. <laughs> you, I, you gotta check them I, out. I agree with the postmodernists that we should be wary of, you know, anybody that claims to have objective truth that we yes. have to, 
be careful in, in examining the meta narratives and understand things in context and not be naive about our understanding of the world. But then what it spiraled into is something so absurd that is completely self-defeating. If you say there's no such thing as truth, that's a truth claim. <laughs> yeah. And it's just completely self-defeating. So, but I, and I, to be fair, I don't think that the, that the real postmodernists are, were saying those things. I think it's the people that followed, right. which took those things on extreme and, and, and butchered uh, these ideas in a way that was absurd. Yeah, for me, like the what I don't accept about postmodernism is, and it's not exactly the philosophy that says this, but it the the people that follow it tend to think that, well, what we need to do is uh, uh, burn down everything about modernity. You know, science science is evil because it just leads to things like a holocaust or whatever, and uh, democracy is evil and. Uh, capitalism is evil and blah blah blah. I like I have critiques of every one of those things, but the idea that the idea that they just shouldn't exist and that they're bad, I don't agree with that. Um, when people critique science, I always think that, or I always try to tell them that the only solution to the problems that science has created for us is better science. Exactly. That is the only solution, and I think that's I think it's the the same thing goes for politics and like democracy. I, I think the only solution actually is just better democracy. And it it's painfully slow, but I I think that it actually is the best way to do things. But better science and also better values. Um, raising a culture that you know doesn't just care about money, but also cares about community. Yep. and cares about the bettering of, of society. Um, you know, a, a, a culture that has those values, but also the tools of science is not a culture that's going to use the tools of science in a, in a self-destructive and detrimental way. Um, so, Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there was still, I, I feel like maybe in the early 20th century, there was still a lot of, a lot of manifest destiny uh, carry that kind of philosophy carried over into now in the 20th century man wielded um incredible power like man had never seen before but their their motivations came from i would say bad values like you said and you know closer in the modern age we we have all this incredible even better you know incredible technology and all this stuff but sort of i think the uh, gordon gecko uh and, and the philosophy of greed and all of that has sort of our priorities have sort of shifted. And I think, I don't know, I think the, I think the pandemic, the fact that people are rethinking the way they work, there are people that are just like, work is soul sucking and sucks. And I don't care about making as much money as I can anymore. And so yeah. people are choosing to do different things. And um, it's not necessarily uh, all that compatible with the system that we have, but I think the solution is a, is a better system. The system we have is not sustainable. Um, and so well, one way yeah. or another, it's going to nothing, nothing ever is indefinitely. So, yeah. Yeah. um, have you read about, this is sort of going way back to the, uh, phenomenology we were talking about, but have you ever read any of Daniel Dennett? I tried to read one of his books and I fell asleep every time I tried to read it. It's um, too difficult for me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, 
I don't want to be unfair because, you know, of course, I can't be certain that my reading or interpretation of his work is correct. But he, from my understanding, seemed to somehow deny qualia, like, which to me is the most, it, it's more insane than the people who think God exists. Mm. It's denying the one thing that I think is actually self-evident, that there is a what it's like of an experience. And so uh, I find that, I, I find this to be completely delusional um, and just confused. Now, maybe I'm, maybe I'm misinterpreting him, but that was my reading of, of his work. And also, I think the whole compatibilist thing of free will is just begging the question. Um, it, it's trying to redefine free will in a way that nobody actually means when they talk about free will. So I, I've never been particularly impressed by his work. Um, I yeah, I just don't, I don't, I don't like it. Okay, yeah, well, we can we can leave that there. I just his his right. It's too, it's beyond me. So I don't have anything really interesting to add. You've also said that you're a nominalist. So uh, could you just go ahead and, again, I have some notes on this, but I'd rather hear your take on it uh, for starters. Yeah, so, you know, I'm, yeah, I struggle with like defining myself in any particular way, because I'm always having, kind of depending on the day, I, I might have a different thought about it, right? Yeah, me too. Um, I think that where I struggle with is, I'm not sure that I believe that these like categories actually exist, right? That there are these real distinctions there. I think they're more projections that we arrive at to kind of navigate our world. Um, but the distance between an object and another, like the and the ontological difference between one and another, I think is far more ambiguous than that. Um, and so, um, I guess one way of describing, uh, nominalism, uh, is that kind of these ideas and categories don't necessarily correspond to reality and that the only things that really exist that can be said to exist are, um, maybe properties, um, numbers particular objects that then we kind of put, put in these categories uh so there's there are like particular trees right but there isn't really like uh this like universal notion of like treeness that we, right we kind of construct that because that's how we navigate our world but that that's not really found out there yes Scientifically speaking, there's no such thing as a tree. Fun fact. Right. right. Um, and so, I mean, there are different uh, different types of nominalism. Uh, but yeah, I, I think to, to simplify it is this, it, it's this idea that like just singular things exist. And then in our engagement with the world, we categorize those singular things in a way that becomes more, more general. Um, uh, I, I think that makes sense. Sure. To me, um, nominalism kind of sounds like materialism or or atomism, mm. right? 
Um, and I don't, I don't really care to call myself a particular type of ist. I'm not a, I don't say I'm a materialist or an atomist or a naturalist or, or whatever. To me, it, it, I, I'll fall into whatever category, depending on what I'm trying to talk about, what question I'm trying to answer. But I suppose, you know, I probably think that the standard model represents all the things that exist and matter like this camera that I'm looking at, this computer, this book that I wrote, these are just, these are just collections of things, uh, of those things that really exist for which we, and, and we categorize them. So what would you say I am if I say that? A nominalist? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're saying what I was saying before, which is like individual things exist but then we kind of categorize these individual things in certain groups. But like the idea of a group is more like our construction or mental construction than something that exists out there. Now, where there is some tension in my own worldviews is that I do think there are universals in the context of phenomenology. There is something about the nature of consciousness that has things that we can point to as universals. And this is a little bit different because the denominalist in general is like rejecting universals, right? Mm -hmm. um, where I would say that there aren't universals as far as like certain kinds of categories and objects. Um, but I think that we can, we can say that there is a type of universality when it comes to like the nature of consciousness, but not in the sense of like an object, just more in the sense of um, some kind of like reality. Um, so nominalism, um, I would, it, it sounds like it's a complete rejection of like the idea of like Plato's theory of forms, right? Yeah, I think, uh, the problem is that there, there is a lot of, you know, different viewpoints that stem from like this similar kind of labels um and so yeah i mean that that seems right to me um yeah okay um what do i have next here um so do you think that universals exist in our minds but not in reality that's what i read into is uh called conceptual nominalism yeah i mean that's that's a view uh, again i'm not sure exactly what my position is that that is intuitively makes sense to me and i agree with what you say like nominalism is rejecting it's kind of platonic realism uh sorts um i think that again from, from my perspective um yeah it makes sense to reject categories as themselves being some kind of uh real universals category categories of like objects and whatnot um but i still hold to a certain kind of universality in in the context of phenomenology itself in the sense mm -hmm. of like uh we can talk about flourishing and suffering and, and conscious experience in a way where our subjectivities um still create a picture that can be said to be um objective in some sense okay um 
change of change of subject kind of sort of but these these are just things that i think are kind of interesting um for you how do you accept a world where free will doesn't exist because a lot of people just if that's true they're just like well then there's no point in anything i don't see the how that that conclusion follows right i think it's a complete non sequitur um i struggle really understanding what could even be meant by by free will um but regardless to me whether or not my experiences thoughts and, and feelings uh and actions perhaps are uh, part of a causal link doesn't change anything about um the qualitative aspect of these experiences like if i like a certain kind of food uh because my brain is structured in such a way where i'm going to like the kind of food that doesn't change anything about my experience of liking the food right. again going back to what i said earlier i'm not going to start eating shit sandwiches because i because i think like oh this my brain has caused me to like pasta now nothing means anything like it just doesn't yeah. make any sense I don't remember if you were there for this conversation, but I, ha I had a free will debate with somebody recently and they kept saying that if I don't have free will, then it's not real. And I kept telling this person, no, 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 no. You really do make decisions. You really do like things and dislike other things. I'm just telling you that free will doesn't, I think maybe it was Angel actually. I don't remember Angel's exactly, but it kept, I think that actually was Angel. So I don't know if you heard that, but yeah, like when people like this attitude of if free will doesn't exist, then nothing matters. I mean, if you're asking that question, you're sort of implying that I took something away from you, but I didn't because it never existed. Nero, Jesus, Buddha, Attila Hun, your mother, you, none of these people ever had it, right? So um, I don't really get the, uh, I, I, I just think that that's kind of what the question implies. but. but yeah, but I think what's interesting, and I, and I think Sam Harris actually points this out, is that people think that, well, maybe it doesn't exist, but we have a strong illusion of it. But Harris points out yeah. that this is actually false too. Mm. That if you ask the person, well, examine your own internal experience, right? When you decide, you know, it, he gives an example of, think of the name of a city, right? We think of a name of city did you freely choose that or did the name of the city pop into your consciousness um on its own yeah and then we you know it, it there's no like there wasn't really a free choice there it was just your you know what we think of as these choices are dependent on kind of neurological events that we do not ourselves author in some kind of free way um I mean, you mentioned Angel. That the guy is completely insufferable. I can't listen to him. He's a complete moron on, on the highest degree of the. Uh, but he's one of those people that just will throw out scientific terms and has no idea what they even mean. Yeah. But no, I, I don't understand the the move from if real doesn't exist, nothing is real. No, the experiences are still what they are, and they still have meaning to us. Just because I can't choose to not react to something differently perhaps um doesn't mean that the experience doesn't have weight in my life yep um, i mean i'm open to anything 
being the case. Like if somebody can provide me with a, a way to explain to me what is meant by free will and, and why I should believe it, I would gladly accept it. Um, uh, but I haven't found anything convincing. Yeah. The, like the idea that, so like not having free will, it doesn't mean that we don't make decisions. Uh, what you're just saying is nobody makes free choices. Their free will makes those choices. Like that's the alternative. Um, cause if we don't have free will, then, then I really do do that. And I'm responsible me, this, this physical thing. And, and I do actually make choices and, and all that. We don't make but, choices in the same kind of way. And we're not right. responsible in the same kind of way. We're it's, so yeah. responsible in the sense that like, and, and it's the way I, I do have some issues where I, I second guess and, you know, like, uh, we would, we don't think of ourselves as comparable to something like a tornado. Like right. a tornado goes over a house, destroys the house. We can say the tornado was responsible for the, that destruction, but not. We don't mean we, we mean something different when we say that a person is morally responsible for having done a certain kind of action. But if the naturalist is right and and everything is nature and everything is is physical, then where is the the distinction morally speaking? Does it even make sense to talk about those things in those kind of terms? Uh, so I think there is some some concern there that needs to be addressed and resolved. Um, and I think there's a way to salvage even moral concerns, even in a context without free will. But it just, you know, then people will say, well, when, you know, are we even still talking about morality at the point? Have we changed the definition so much that we're talking about something else? Yeah. Well, uh, one thing that people say is, like, if if we don't have free will, then, like, a justice system wouldn't make any sense. But... Um, for me, I think like, okay, if, if if the decisions are made by our free will, then how do you punish somebody's free will? Because you can't do that. So what what's the point of our justice system if we have free will? Um, <laughs> because relevant at all. Yeah, I, I, I feel like in the end, you'd have to just be like, well, I can't change somebody's free will and I can't punish it. Ultimately, the uh, the punishment or whatever would have to come, I don't know, from an afterlife or something like that. Um, and so then you just have to be like, you just have to throw your hands up and say, well, it's in God's hands. But why should we ever do anything if we can't, you know, punish somebody's free will? What would be the point of a justice system? But that, that makes any sense to me. First of all, uh, I don't think that a justice system should just be focused on punishment. It should also be focused on rehabilitation. Right, I feel the same way. Yeah. But regardless, now that to me seems very relevant. I mean, look, if if we put somebody in, in prison who was harming people, we would want to do that regardless of whether or not they are free to choose what they've chosen or they're not. What we care about is the damage that can cause society. Uh, now, if we could uh, give them a pill, right, that somehow made any kind of violent tendency go away, where there wouldn't be a menace to society. That mm -hmm. would be a preferable thing to do. But right. in a context where we can't do that, we have still have to protect ourselves. It's not like, you know, again, going back to the tornado example, uh, it's not like, uh, you know, if the tornado isn't conscious or doesn't have a will, it just is what it is, well, then we're not going to protect ourselves from the tornado. You know, we're still going to protect ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, like, we could, like, you could almost do this like a thought experiment. Let's say somebody somebody has an identical twin and they're they're very normal people, but then one of them just kind of 
later on in life just completely turns into somebody else and then ends up killing somebody. And I find out that they have a tumor in their brain that's been pressing okay. on their amygdala. Yeah. And we remove the tumor. Okay, should that person spend the rest of their life in jail? I would say not. Yeah. That's, no, that's I, what I would say. But if we, if you think that they should stay in jail, I think that's because what you're trying to do is punish their free will. Because you're saying that, that that whatever their free will is made that decision and the person is kind of irrelevant almost in a way. And, and to me, that just doesn't really make any sense. I, I think it's hard because it's a very emotional subject, right? And there we have the intuitions that we have. Right? Like, so if I knew that somebody had killed somebody, you know, uh, someone that I loved and I found out that they had a brain tumor, uh, and then they remove the brain tumor and, you know, well, the person that I love is still, is gone forever. Um, is it right that then they get to walk away and, you know, and, and then live their life after the, you know, they took away somebody that I cared about. Um, on an emotional level, on an intuitive level, I want to say no, because ultimately you still did what you did. Uh, but is that rational? Probably not. Um, especially if we knew that uh, the same person was not in any kind of danger of repeating what they've done. Mm -hmm. you know, these are difficult, difficult um, conversations, I think. Yeah. Well, you would expect that that person who did that would probably suffer for the rest of their life. Right. So I would say, you know, it's not the same as uh, taking a life, but uh, a lifetime of having to deal with that is uh, is not nothing. So I would feel like, in a way, there would be justice there. I guess it it's hard. It, it's hard because, you know, at the same time, I, I I'm driven to want to say, regardless, they shouldn't be allowed back in society, but that might not square away with kind of the knowledge that we might have about what led to those things to happen in the first place. Yeah. I look, I think I'm, uh, I, I'm against like the idea of the death penalty, just even from a, not even from like necessarily a moral or philosophical standpoint, but just from like a, like a political standpoint. Like if you think that, uh, like very weirdly people that are really big on the government, like not interfering with people's lives, tend to be so what i mean is right wingers they they tend to also really like the death penalty i'm like so you're telling me that the government has the right to decide who gets to live and who gets to die i mean that just makes absolutely no sense whatsoever it, it, the cons the conservative is a constant walking contradiction because they'll say you know fuck government we want government out of of our lives and then uh, until then the government can push their political agenda. Yeah. Uh, you know, let's remove uh, gay rights. Let's remove trans rights. Let's force people to, uh, let's burn books uh, because, because they teach things that, you know, uh, because they think anything that that's against their view as propaganda. Uh, so it's, it's really a, such a cognitive dissonance there uh that's just mind-boggling to me and and bo both TikTok and twitter uh are i mean it's exhausting to just read <laughs> the nonsense on there um I, I saw a live of 
this more on earlier, something like, um, let's, as, as conservatives, let's stop going into leftist lives uh, because that is the only way in which their propaganda and hateful rhetoric can continue existing. Yeah, because uh, the trend throughout all of history is that every generation has been more conservative than the generation right. before. <laughs> That's yeah. the exact opposite. Like, like we're, we're, we're inevitable. Ones. <laughs> the, the, the leftists are the hateful ones when it's the, the conservatives that are the, the homo homophobes and, and transphobes and uh, uh, paranoid about everything except their own churches. Uh, yeah, and their own and their own demagogues that they uh they prop up, who happen to be uh uh career fraudsters and yeah. and snake oil salesmen. But, but know, whatever, that's a, that's a different topic. Oh, but actually, vaccines, the reason let, let's never take vaccines because it changes our DNA and turns it into litter, lizard people. Yeah, that's like, that's very just stupid. complete lunacy. That uh, funny enough, uh, that vaccine hesitancy was a left wing thing forever. That's where it started, and then yeah, I just jumped into a right wing thing for. I don't, well, probably because of mistrust in institutions, I guess, but actually, so the whole reason I brought up the uh, the idea of like the death penalty or whatever is to connect to what we were talking about. I I can uh, I, I can see a, a system where people are not allowed back in society, like what you were talking about, mm -hmm. but I don't believe in solitary confinement and, you know, these maximum security prisons and Guantanamo, Guantanamo Bay and, and things like that. It, it has to be i don't know how you would structure it what it would look like but um yeah that's that's basically mm -hmm. all i wanted to say about that okay um we're gonna get to the last thing here which is uh now we're actually gonna talk about science so sure. what would you say your view on philosophy's role in science is i mean like i was saying before i think one important role is figuring out how to communicate the science to the layman, to the general public. Okay. Um, to resolve certain questions that science brings up that the theories themselves are not addressing. Like what I said before about, you know, what, what do we mean by existence if we remove a context of space and time? Um, I, I think the main role is one of communication, of translation. Uh, but then also, of course, like, you know, in examining the scientific method. Uh, what is it that we're valuing when we are engaging in the scientific method? Are there any flaws with it? If there are, how do we correct those flaws? Um, and yeah, I think it's, I, I would say it's more of like an interpretive um, value that philosophy has. For for me, what what I would say is, uh, philosophy's job is to is to try to help inspire scientists how to think about the next problem yeah. to solve. Right. So I, I I think it's sort of where a lot of the thinking outside the box and the creativity comes mm -hmm. from. Sure. That's that's basically what I would say. Um, do you think that? Karl Popper's idea about the what counts as science and what the philosophy of science is. Do you think that he got that right? Most of it makes sense, except for some of the sort of like implications. It's like the idea of, for Popper, this moves us away from the idea of that science is all about induction, right? Because mm -hmm. 
Popper sort of says the same thing that David Hume says. Right. Um, like you could never know with any kind of certainty whether or not the sun will rise. I, I agree with that. Like I, I agree with the idea that science cannot provide us with like certainty. Yeah. But who cares? Yeah. But but I still think that science is inductive because to me that's exactly what a scientific theory is. So like for example, uh, plate tectonics. It's it's a grand narrative. So you take all these particular observations like the the pattern of earthquakes, the distribution of them, the the geography and the geology of our of our planet, the mid-ocean ridges, and, and all these things, and all these these patterns link to this grand narrative of plate tectonics, this fairly simple idea that unifies a huge range of observations. That's induction. But like with Popper, it's like, well, if it could at any time be overthrown, if all science does is actually dis that that's kind of the other thing too, is um the idea that all science does is like disprove things i i'm just kind of i mean i feel like i i get what you mean and it sounds reasonable but at the same time it's like isn't science about like cause and effect and and all this other stuff i i think that um i agree with the idea that science ultimately doesn't prove things like a, a theory is a model from my understanding that tries to make sense of the relationship among these different facts, right? Yeah. And so we can never say that these models are in any kind of certain sense true. Um, and I agree with him on that level. Um, but yeah, I think there are some, uh, I'm not sure how I feel about it overall. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. That's fine. Um, last thing is to me, um, actually, let me do this real quick. Okay. Um, so when it comes to science for me, I, I'm really not interested in anything other than really the utility of science. Mm -hmm. So when people argue with me about like the, the philosophical perspective, I, I tend to try to ask them like, what can you do given your worldview that I can't other than validate your feelings. You know, I've, I've never gotten an answer to that question before. Right. So are you talking about, well, I'm trying to understand the question. So. Well, like when people argue with me about science, like, Oh, you think that science is like figured all this out and, and, and all this other kind of stuff. Um, I, what am I asking? I thought yeah. this made perfect sense to well, me in my head. <laughs> well, no, look, I would just say, one, I don't claim a science has everything figured out. I don't think no, neither any do scientist would. I think science is the best tool we have to try to make sense of the world that we're engaged with. I think it's the most rigorous approach. Um, but also, there's nothing about the limitations or flaws of my worldview that somehow justifies your, your worldview. Um, and so I, you know, I often debate, you know, religious people and they want to start pointing to all the problems with science that they think exist. And I want to say, okay, but we're not, for, forget my worldview. My worldview could be entirely wrong, right? But we're questioning your worldview. Um, and so even if mine was completely wrong, it doesn't suddenly justify your belief in Jesus, you know, your belief in, in, 
Islam or any of these things. So yeah. there's often a shifting of the burden of proof there when it comes to these questions. Yeah. Like what, what I was what I was trying to get at is, you know, people will say like, well, in your in your worldview, like naturalism or science or whatever, you can't tell me where truth comes from. Or you can't tell me what what consciousness is, or or you have no idea where the universe came from, or whatever. And that's why I was saying like like I don't care about any of that. I just care about the utility of science. And I think it's very uncontroversial to say that the reason the world is the way it is, uh, or like the the benefits we reap from it, are from science. At least. But I would sure. say, but I would say that the statement is also a false one to say that. Uh, naturalism can't tell us X, Y, or Z. Uh, says who? Um, says them. <laughs> well, they're wrong. I mean, yeah. uh, I don't see what positing some immaterial reality or some deity does to actually tell us what truth is uh, or yep. tell us wh where uh, consciousness comes from. I mean, I'm not saying that that my worldview necessarily provide a certainty about those questions but i could i would just say that the truth is the state of affairs whatever is the case yeah. and then and then there's a secondary question which is you know once we recognize that we can't be certain of what the state of affairs is well then how do we determine what is more justified and reasonable to believe in based on the available tools well my worldview can absolutely deal with that question uh, as it can deal with the question of meaning and love and, and morality and justice and all these things. Just saying, well, God does it, right? That's not actually answering anything, You're just making up a story. That's why I said it, it, your, when I ask them, what can your worldview do that, that mine can, or what does your worldview allow you to do that mine can't, it can't do anything other than validate their feelings. Like I was talking about, I don't know if you saw the video I uploaded uh, yesterday, or the other day where the guy asked me like, uh, in your worldview, where does truth come from? Mm. You know, yeah, or actually yeah, yeah. that that specific part of it, I haven't uploaded yet, but we had the, we had this argument about, yeah, there's, there's two different parts to it. And so like in the end, I just asked, like I gave my case that I think it comes from reality because yeah. as, yeah. as Aaron Ross says, the truth is what the facts are. Right. I actually like that a lot. And if there are true things, like I just asked him, you know, do you agree the universe exists? Yes. Okay, well, then you think that this universe is composed of facts that can be known about. Mm -hmm. But then he said, ultimately, there has to be like some sort of transcendent truth or thing truth that gives us truth. And then I just said, yeah, it's called clip-clop, uh, not, yeah, yeah, not God you believe in. And that completely broke his brain. I was like, look, it's it's the exact same thing you're arguing. This doesn't allow you to do anything except assert things. And I was like, right. well, I can just assert something that's exactly the same qualitatively, but just a, a different specific claim. And, and it, I hear this often from the presuppositionalists who say that without a transcendent foundation, intelligibility is impossible. We can't understand anything if there isn't a God to ground this stuff. Yeah, like, it makes, I don't cool. get it. Like, yeah, like, exactly. I don't care about, and then they say, well, because the, the opposite is impossible, which is just kind of restating the premise. Like, again, I don't care about your feelings. I don't care about your incredulity. Show me why that's the case. Provide an argument why that's the case. You're just saying, well, how could it be otherwise? It means nothing to me. I can say reality is reality. In my experience of reality, I recognize certain patterns. Because I recognize those patterns, I can make predictions. And I can arrive at some kind of understanding of the way that the world seems to be. 
And yep. I don't need anything besides that. If you if you made the claim that there has to be some transcendent thing there, uh, then show me why that's the case. They they can never do it. All they can say is state it. Uh, yep. They're just parroting nonsense. Yeah. All right. Uh, the final thing I had was um, I think we're talking about philosophy and science. I think that a philosophical shift is why we have science in the first place. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure what philosophy will do next for science. Do you have any kind of like insight or or anything like that about that? Well, I think I think I'll just say what I said before, which I think that the utility of philosophy going forward in the context of science is in translating science in a way that will bring about meaning that can be understood. Because again, uh, if a theory or if an observation is leading to something that that isn't linguistically expressible or expressed in a way that makes sense, if a physicist tells me, well, just look at the math, that doesn't do it for me. Right. Uh, because I, because one, we have to think, well, what is math doing? Uh, and then what are we understanding from the math? Like, what is the math even meaning, saying? Right. And so I think the value of philosophy in a, in a relationship with science is in translation, uh, is in constructing a new language that actually makes sense of these things in a way that can be comprehensible. Um, and I think sometimes scientists, kind of miss the bigger picture. They get stuck in the weeds uh, and kind of, you know, are just looking at the tree and not the forest. Um, and so that I think would be the value of philosophy there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Um, it made me sort of, this is a little bit different, but it made me sort of think of this guy, Fritz Haber. I don't know if you know who he was, but he, uh, he was a horrible person and one of the most important people who ever lived. So he was a German chemist and he figured out how to make synthetic fertilizer out of the nitrogen in the air. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you look at graphs of population growth, it was, it was going up, but it was, it was going up linearly and very slowly. And uh, since then, the world population has doubled three times. And this was only about 100 years ago. So around a third of all the people that exist probably only exist because of him, right? So it's unquestionably one of the most significant and important inventions ever. And he's the guy that invented mustard gas. And he just right. ruthlessly pursued this. And he had these arguments like, look, it, these, these politicians and these, these bureaucrats and these whatever, they, they like to tell us that being ripped apart by bullets and bombs is somehow acceptable, but but being poisoned with a gas isn't. And he he outright rejected that. And I was like, I I guess in a way you sort of have a point. But he he just was completely blind to everyone and everything around him in this in this pursuit of this. And his own wife committed suicide because she couldn't she couldn't stand him anymore. And the very next day he just went out and uh, uh, poisoned a bunch of people on a battlefront in Germany or France once again. And so to me. Uh, later in life, he sort of came around and was like, "Yeah, maybe, maybe none, of, maybe all that was sort of wrong." But to me, that's sort of like the idea of like, where are our like? We can use the science to do whatever we want, but where are our priorities, and what are those informed from? Sure. So I think maybe, along with like what you said, I, I think that that's probably the role that philosophy has as well. For sure. 
Yeah, and, I, and I, like I said, I think that both science and philosophy work the best when they're hand in hand and informing each other. Yeah, yeah. Um, it can go very, very wrong. Like we could get into we could get into uh, the uh, harebrained anti scientific ideas of uh, of uh, Soviet Russia, like uh, Lysenka. Sure. They had a they had a Marxist philosophy that caused all kinds of people to starve to death because they couldn't right. grow food because they were scientifically uh, their philosophy well, was directly which, against the science. Which is why I'm saying that they, they need to work hand in hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I could go on about that, but we've already done I don't know like an hour and a half or something, close to two hours maybe. I'm not sure, but um, yeah, I think that'll do it. I think that was very well said. Thank you so thanks much for, for yeah, oh, thanks yeah. for having me. I always appreciate your conversations. Uh, and uh, yeah, we'll definitely have to talk more in the future. Um, always enjoy collaborating with you. And uh, yeah, I'm sure I'll, I'll catch you on your next live or something. Oh, it'll be tonight. <laughs> Great. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah. Thank you so much.